Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a special guest joining me for a chat. He's a former detective inspector who spent 35 years in the police. He's had a role within the CID, investigated several murder cases and spent years investigating fraud. His book, A Cruel Deception, was released in 2018. It tells the true story of con woman Barbara Hendry and two of her victims, Joan and Ted Warner. Please welcome to the show, Kim Booth. Good afternoon. Pleased to be here. Welcome. It's great to have you on. What we are going to do, though, I know when we had the brief production meeting a couple of weeks ago when I was in uh, on the East Coast, we're going to have yeah. a, a fun icebreaker question, which is what we right. always do with my guests. It's just a little bit of fun. gets the mind ticking. So what I'm going to ask you on this occasion is, if you could pick any band or artist, dead or alive, it's a little bit morbid though, to play at your funeral, who would you pick and why? Madness. I think they're a very sort of vibrant group and they'll certainly liven the tone a bit of a depressive day. That's what I'd pick, I think. I definitely sold you short with that intro with regards to what you've done for your career over 35 years. It seems like you've had your fingers in so many different pies. So where did you actually grow up then? I grew up in Lincoln. I'm a Lincoln, Lincolnshire yellow belly, as they say. And um, I left school with no qualifications except O-level woodwork, which I think I got for good attendance, and then started looking for a job. And Lincoln was sort of heavy foundries in those days. And I went through a course with the careers lot, the other careers office then. And they took me to a local factory, which was what they call fettling, where they do all the casts and you knock all the odd bits off and basically get mucked up during the day. I thought, well, I don't fancy that. And uh, went around a few other things, the bakery, large bakery, and I thought, I don't fancy that either. I think my mother and father were getting a bit frustrated. I went to work with my father, who was a civil engineer, for a while, and he basically wanted twice as much work for half the money. He was paying everybody else, you know. So, <laughs> so I sort of was in a bit of a quandary. My mother was a policewoman in the 1960s, um, but I didn't really allude to that. I, I, it didn't cross my mind. And then I went to work in a hotel in Lincoln, 
I was basically a bit of a dog's body, porter, waiter, all the rest of it. This bloke checked into the hotel, very suave, very well turned out, plenty of money, all the rest of it, sort of buying drinks all around for the customers and getting in with people. And then all of a sudden he left, and he left a massive bill. I thought that was the end of that. But I had a few dealings with him while he was resident at a hotel for a while, and the CID came to interview me. This CID man sat down opposite me and said, right, what do you know? Did he tell you anything about where he's from? And he had done and he, he took a statement off me, and I suddenly thought, I quite fancy that. I could do that. And that's basically what steered me towards the police force. And then I went into the police force, which was not a major difficult task in those days. First, I went in as a cadet for about six months, nine months, and then I joined as a regular. And as soon as I got in the police force, I decided I wanted to be a CID man. That was all I wanted to do, not bothered about dog handling, traffic patrol. But in those days, you had to go through walking the beat for your probationary period for two years. And then if you want to specialise a bit later on, you could do. But you couldn't be in CID sort of straight away because you they say, you know, in those days you had to have the experience. So I first started a place at Louth in Lincolnshire, which is a market town. And I was there for a year walking the beat. And then I got hold of a car police car, the Portland police car, which made it even better. And then I was in there in the driving the police car, dealing with accidents and shotgun inquiries and everything you dealt with in those days. And then I ended up uh, in the CID after two and a half years. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And that's basically how it came to pass. What age would you have been when you were first asked those questions by the CID guys? About 17, something like that. So that will have been really at the point where it was decision time, wouldn't it, as far as what career path you're going to take? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I must confess, I have no regrets whatsoever. For all the hassle I've had over the years and all the grief and all the terrible jobs I've had to deal with, I've not had a problem with it. I would do it all again without a shadow of a doubt and the blink of an eye. But I did have to make a decision and uh, it's worked out all right. It's been an interesting career. When did you join? What year when you first joined the police? First joined 75. 74, actually. 74. At what point did you manage to, to get into the CID? How long did that dream take to become a reality? About just over two years. I think it's the same in the, this day and age, but in those days, if you show a flair or you show a genuine interest, a classic example would be that um, this bloke was a, um, it was an agricultural thief. He'd still tractors all sorts of combines and implements and other machinery. And they were trying to catch him. And I noticed that um, he would come to the market every week, a farmer's market. And I saw him at this farmer's market. I thought, oh, I know who that is. And then I found out he was driving whilst disqualified. He was a disqualified driver. So every time he came to the market, I arrested him <laughs> for driving whilst disqualified. <laughs> you know, because nobody was doing it. Yeah. And then people who were seriously interested in him, you know, what was he like? What was he driving? What did he have? What did he say? What did he have in his possession? And all this business. That was before the days you'd take the phone off him and download the phone and all that. And then there was other incidents that happened. Because I was in a small market town, there wasn't a massive queue for the CID, so I was quite fortunate then. And I got in, you go in as an aide, you do six months attachment, so to speak. So I did the six months attachment, got on all right with that. And then I went to Skegness. I got transferred to Skegness for the summer season because they used to 
transfer officer from different parts of the county for the summer season in Skegness. So I went in the CRD at Skegness for a summer season, which is quite busy because the population sort of swells between April to end of September. A great influx of people from the Glasgow fortnight, Birmingham fortnight or West Midlands, Yorkshire, even your colleagues or friends mm-hmm. might have been to Skeg in years gone by. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's quite popular. And they used to have a, a, a holiday camp called Derbyshire Miners, which was owned by the Derbyshire Miners Union. And they used to bring all the miners and the kids there for the holidays. So it's quite busy. Then I did six months at Skeg. Then I went back to Louth, did a few months there. And then I went back, went to uh, transfer to Lincoln CID. I worked in the CID there for four or five years. Do you remember your first proper case that you were tasked with working on in the CID? There are memorable cases that I remember really well. I mean, obviously, where you're living, like Louth, which is a market town, is dependent on who's living there or who visits, whereas in a sort of a a Birmingham city situation, it's different. So in a rural county, you get a lot of crime committed by people who are visitors, you know, we've got things that attract a lot of visitors, like Skegness, like Market Rays and Races, get a lot of people there. Cadwell Park, that's Lincolnshire. You know, so you see these pe- these people come in, and vast majority are very law-abiding, enjoy the countryside and the functions. But I think certain individuals who I've come across come over there and see, oh, we'll have a look at that. You know, we have burglaries committed by people from different cities that are away. And the hard part in those days was detecting them and finding out who the offender was. So was that quite a common thing for, because like you say, it's mainly known for the tourists, isn't it? Especially Skegness, that kind of area. It seems bizarre for people, but it does make sense to visit such a holiday destination purely to commit robberies before returning home with whatever they've managed to get. We used to say in the CRD, if it's an offence we think committed by somebody from away, you've got a week to detect it. Because after a week or four, now they've gone gone back to where they come from. So mm-hmm. nowadays it's easier because you go do proper fingerprint searches. But in those days, if you wanted to check fingerprints, you had to have a good idea where they were from. So they could be manually checked against the fingerprints of the police force, like Leeds or Doncaster or Birmingham. If you got fingerprints and you knew it was Birmingham weekend or Glasgow weekend, then you had a good idea yeah. where the punters had come from. They were visiting the resort. So would they actually be robbing people in public like pickpocketing or would it be residents that they were robbing there's a lot of pickpocketing now in those days it was there was a lot of one-armed bandits gaming machines i mean you go through a amusement arcade and break into all the machines there's a fair Mm. bit of money to be had various shops and that that they'll break it into a few street robberies but not too many but then now again you see there's a big deterrent in cctv i was there the other day there's quite a lot of cctv about Mm-hmm. Which I think, okay, certain people say it's invading your privacy. The other side of the coin is it's very good CCTV. Get a good picture and you can circulate it and somebody will pop up and say, well, that's so-and-so. It changes with the times. Just on CCTV, how easy is it to locate CCTV? So, for example, there's a common thing you see in films about it being deleted after 24 hours, so there's a time element. I don't know if that's for dramatic effect. How easy is it to actually gain CCTV footage and where would you even go for it? If you attend in the scene of a crime, say a robbery of news agents, then first and foremost, you're going to have a look at the news agent's CCTV if they've got it. That's dependent on the quality. 
some CCTV is exceptionally good. Some CCTV is not very good at all. It also depends on the location of the CCTV. The cameras, are they going to give a good view of the offender? You know, so then you go from there, if there's CCTV outside, possibly CCTV on local residence houses, you've got it on the county council. Lincoln's got a very good CCTV system. You know, so you go to the council and get that. But it also, it does depend on how good it is. And then some of them are on loops where it'll run over seven days and then it'll record again over the previous images. Yeah. Or some of them are at fortnight, some of them are 28 days. It's on CD and it's a good system. You can download it anyway onto another disc and take it with you. It's bizarre how there can be such a discrepancy in the quality, especially in this day and age. Well, yeah, it does. But you see, some of them, some of the bigger organisations, some of the bigger firms and stores can afford it, whereas your, your local news agent, it just makes me laugh a bit when you see these television programmes. I was watching one the other day where they're looking at the CCTV and Scotland Yard are doing it, and I think the security service are involved. And they say, OK, you know, get us a CCTV at Terminal 5 Heathrow. Yeah, have a look at that. And then they say, get us a CCTV in the gym over there. Yeah, we'll patch into that. But it don't work like that because they're all separate systems. You just can't sort of say, right, we'll log into that or hack into that. Theory. It doesn't work like that. Well, it doesn't yet. Does your career prevent you from enjoying shows such as that? You know, like Line of Duty and all these drama shows that BBC and ITV make. I imagine you'd be constantly thinking, oh, that's not quite right. Oh, they've got that bit wrong. <laughs> you do, you do. Some are more realistic than others. But in reality... Things aren't solved within 60 minutes with two commercial, three-minute commercial breaks, are they? No. It doesn't work like that. There's some better than others, shall we say. So you spent, what, four or five years in CID at that point. What was your next role after that? My next role after that was uh, I went on the... Well, within the CID, there's several roles. There was They had an inquiry unit for foreign force inquiries. They had an antiques, second-hand dealers and antiques squad, so to speak where you'd circulate all the stuff that's stolen that's been reported to the police, and you'd go around the second-hand dealers, give us a list, give them a list, and they'd check if they've got it, and if they've got it, where did you get it from, and all that. You know, so so I was doing that for a while and put a second-hand dealer down for 18 months because he was receiving stuff, receiving stolen goods. And then you had the Foreign Force Inquiries squad, which I also did, which you're in the CID, and then you get a police force or contact, to CID and say, right, we've got an inquiry here. Fred Blocks lives down the high street. What do you know about him? Or he wants arrested. And in those foreign force inquiries, like uh, in the early days, I had inquiries for the Peter Sutcliffe job because what happened was, was um, the Yorkshire police were obviously tracing people that were down the red light area and there were being the car numbers of car registrations were being recorded. And then they'd send inquiries to the forces where these cars are registered and you just have to go around the house or contact the person and say which is quite difficult at times you know you're in the red light area on monday the 21st of whatever can you tell us what you're doing there because at that time they didn't have any idea that Sutcliffe was the villain of the piece so to speak but all these people were in out of the red light area it's quite difficult because you know some of them married blokes and got families and all this business some were lorry drivers working from away so if you're going to be you can't just bang on the door and knock on the door at tea time and say, right, you're in the red light area in Leeds because his wife will probably know. 
Yeah. So after you spoke to them and they came up with a reasonable alibi, then you have to ring this telephone number. It was 0532 one was the number. And I've done it so many times. <laughs> and what you used to do, give the, give the receiver the handset to the person you're talking to. And then they'd hear the tape of Wearside Jack. Yeah. And you remember? Yeah, you know, yeah. hello, hello, George, you are no nearer carrying yeah. <laughs> yeah, catching me. And then you start to say, do you recognise that voice? I mean, it was a, a very big inquiry, but I think they went down that route a bit too much at the time, which proved to be a, a red herring because they caught the bloke who sent the, sent the letter. So then you had that inquiry team in the CRD. So I did, did all that. Enjoyed it. It was good fun. And then went from there onto the drug squad as a detective sergeant. And obviously, with being in the drug squad, more or less at that time, everybody wanted to fight because they don't want to give up the drugs, you know. So that was interesting two or three years. And that's when we got involved in the contract killing, when we were on surveillance uh, watching a uh, an alleged, I must say alleged, alleged drug dealer. But we weren't particularly after him. We were after... The chap who used to come from somewhere up north used to go down to London and used to get probably, I don't know, 800 grand, a million quid's worth of drugs. And then he would get rid of the drugs on the way back to where he lived up north. So he'd stop at Coventry, Birmingham, Leeds, Lincoln, all sorts of places. So when he picked up the drugs in London, his load of drugs was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And everything went according to plan back in his home address with a, a shed load of money, but no drugs. Mm. And we we knew he was visiting through various reasons. We knew he was visiting a particular chap on our patch. Now, because this drug dealer was so surveillance conscious, and we knew that other organisations like Customs and various others had a go at him, I thought, right, okay, we'll do it the other way around. We will surveil our man to see him, to follow him to his supplier, i.e. the drug dealer, and do it then, you know, arrest the drug dealer. And the meeting point was the uh, Lincolnshire showground, which is just up the road. So we set up on our alleged drug dealer and followed him for two or three days, which is quite labour-intensive, actually. And then on the third day, we sat, he was in the house with his wife and he picked the kids up from school, and everybody, everything's quiet. And one of my staff said, because um, we've got several cars in the area and a couple of motorbikes, said, there's a car just driving past me and I don't like the look of it. I says, oh, well, have you got the number? He says, no, no, I've got the number. I said, if it comes again, comes past again, let me know the number. And we'll check the number on the police computer. So about half an hour later, he pipes up again. Yeah, I've uh, seen that car again. He said, I don't like the look of the people who are in it. I said, have you got the number? He says, yeah. I says, well, We'll get it checked. So we checked the registration number of this car, and it belonged to a, a higher firm in Middlesbrough. And I said, well, and it was getting near five o'clock in the evening. So I said, well, ring the higher firm and see who's, see who's got it. So I rang the higher firm and said, uh, yeah, yeah, it's one of our cars. It's on hire to an executive at ICI somewhere in Middlesbrough, and it's on his drive at home. So it's down here. <laughs> you know, so, so I said, right, I've got to keep, I want to know where that car is. Let's get it sorted. And so what happened was, was about an hour later, it drove through our plot again, stopped outside the house where, we, where our alleged drug dealer was living. One bloke stayed in the car, another two walked up to the drive, banged on the door, 
and Armand's wife answered the door, a bit of an argument. And with that, Armand stuck his head out the bathroom window to see what the noise was, and Warren drew a gun and shot him in the head. God. And he went through his, his forehead, but you like your brain's in two halves, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it went straight down the middle of that, through the plasterboard in the ceiling of the bathroom, out through the tiles. And then they walked back to the car, got in the car. So they said, what we're going to do? I said, right, everybody up. And we weren't armed. So I said, you know, should we take it on? They said, yeah, we'll take it on. We'll follow them. So we started following them. And I called for some firearm support, or ARVs, which are the armed police vehicles. And one was at Caister, which is about 45 mile away. And the other one was at Hallington, which is about 50 mile away. So we're no good there. They won't get to us in time. So we followed it into Lincoln, into the built-up area, and then they, they sussed it. They realised we'd been followed, put the foot down. We lost them, then we found them again. We finally chased the car, which was by this time, half past five in the evening, rush hour, and they were going straight down the middle of the A46 with us following. And then we caught them in um, Sainsbury's car park in Newark, and two of them ran off and one sort of stayed with the car wondering what to do and we arrested him and then we arrested the other two later and then obviously they went to Crown Court and got, well one of them was uh, allegedly committed suicide but or is a heroin overdose in prison he died and then the other two got 18 years apiece for the trouble jeez it was an interesting one that. it was uh, and obviously they threw the gun out on the way to Newark on the side of the road and uh, we found out they'd thrown the gun out. And then we searched and found the gun, which was a 9 millimeter handgun loaded. It has been stolen from Royal Mail en route to a firearms dealer in York. Right. So they were deliver- delivering that to someone who'd bought it legitimately. and they just Legitimately. And then somebody had it out. Well, it's one of four guns. Somebody had it out of the, uh, the mail. They must have known it was en route, surely. Oh, yeah, obviously. Whether they've been tipped off or somebody a firearms firm or manufacturers, that was it. So that was that. And then so I carried on the drug squad for four or five years. Oh, before that, before that, I was on the Regional Crime Squad, which is the National Crime Agency nowadays. Yeah. And that is basically you're in a region, and our region was number three region, which is Leeds, Nottingham, Lincolnshire, or sort of South Yorkshire. And, uh, and you just surveil, surveil people all the time. You know, when you go to work on Monday with a hold all, you say to the wife, I'll see you sometime in the week. Because at the end of the day, you are following people and you don't know where they're going to go. So, you know, you can start off in Lincoln, end up in Leeds, end up in Glasgow, end up in anywhere you like, you know, and following them and following them as rules of intelligence and information. And my job on that, was although everybody's surveillance trained, they're all surveillance trained advanced drivers. My job on that was what they call a cropman, which is covert rural observation post. And what you do is you hide in, you know, you build hides in bushes and sometimes in gardens, and then you would be deployed in extortion demands, kidnaps. We did some work on, on Michael Sams, as Stephanie Slater, he kidnapped the estate agent. But before that, he kidnapped and killed. Julie Dark, she was a, a sex worker from Leeds and she was murdered. And how we got involved with that is that she, her body was was left at the side of the A1 at uh, Colsterworth, which is in our police area. So we got this dead body 
of this sex worker. She was identified, and then we sort of tied in with West Yorkshire, which tied us in with Sam's and, and Stephanie Slater. And then Sam's was, it was eventually arrested because he put a tape or sent a tape into Crime Watch, rather, and his wife identified him. And we were covering telephone boxes because he he was making these demands from various telephone boxes and all that, you know. So we had to cover the telephone boxes in this particular area. And then he was the one that he had a wooden leg, he did. Lost his leg. And then, obviously, uh, he was arrested, went went to prison. And I think recently, I think in the few, last few years, Stephanie Slater, the, the girl who was kidnapped, died of cancer. You know, so they were the sort of the jobs we got involved with on the regional crime squad, i.e. the precursor to the, the National Crime Agency. You know, you have jobs where you have to obviously deliver the money or things like that. So I've, I've done jobs like that. And these people, uh, like food contamination used to be quite a thing where they'd go in and put glass in baby food in the supermarket and then make demands to the company that's manufacturing the baby food. One of the MOs at that time was to the firm had to open an account, deposit money in it, and then send the debit card to a location so the offenders could get it. And once they've got their hands on it, they would be able to draw money out of the fund put in by the company anywhere in the country. So a lot of police forces were deployed to look at cash points and banks and various places because, I mean, generally, criminals can be quite lazy. You know, they want the easy money. So they would not go out of their catchment area to get the money out of the account. It's not like the accounts in Yorkshire and they're down in Devon and Cornwall. It wouldn't be too bad today because it'd be a lot easier to detect because you've got ANPR all over the place. Yeah. You know, it's very time consuming. And I think not many people have used that lately because the starting point is going to be the time that the offender does the cash point withdrawal in a particular location. And nine, nine, nine times out of ten, you've got a code by ANPR. So you're going to get a car or something if you've got the resources and the time to look through your ANPR. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think the, the, the baddies have gone off the idea a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so after that, I had a couple of years in uniform, and then I went back to the CID at Lincoln another two or three years there dealing with uh, various things. But prior to that, I was at um, I was at a place called Market Raisin where the race courses. I used to get a lot of visits to the race course. And one day I had a report deposited on my desk and looking at the front of the report, been everywhere, you know, all around Lincoln Police, Lincolnshire Police, been to every office, every CID office. And it landed on my desk because where I was was the focal point for the offence, the alleged offence. And that's where I got into that fraud that the book's on. Mm-hmm. This elderly couple, this report, a, a bloke had been to a police station hall, and he said, I'm a bit concerned about my relatives and seem to be sending a lot of money to this woman, and we don't know who she is. We've asked them about it, and they won't talk about it, but they're quite happy it's all legitimate. And I think it was going on for 15000 then, which is quite a lot of money. And so it came to my attention, and I thought, I'll have a look at this. We'll see what it's all about. I read it, and this woman was purporting to be the illegitimate daughter of Dutch Argyle, was, was uh, due a vast inheritance because of who she was. But they were 
They were blocking it and she needed funds to release the inheritance. I went to see this elderly couple, the nicest elderly couple you will ever, ever come across. Everybody's sort of grandma and granddad. Yeah. I went I went to see them. I says, we've received this information that you've given this money. And they, they didn't say a thing until I finished. I said, well, is that right? They said, well, yeah, it is right, but we're happy with it. I said, well, do you mind if I have a look at it and see what the score is and identify? We don't want you to identify the person. We know who she is. And she's, we're happy it's right. She's a good friend of ours. And we've known her a few years. I said, okay, then fine. I said, well, if you have any sort of reservations, contact me. Nothing happened. And then somebody from uh, a bank, a bank manager, came to the police station and said, we're concerned about how much money is being sent up to Scotland to this woman. All right, okay. And he kept, went to, it didn't come to me, it went to somebody else. And they contacted me and said, you know, it's, this is a job you've got. And she's, they're still sending all this money. So I went to see him again. And I said, look, it sounds odd. It doesn't sound right. You know, we uh, said, well, you know, do you know this woman? I said, no, I don't, I don't know her. You obviously do. Yeah, we're happy with it, all the rest of it. I said, it just doesn't sound right to me. Will you let me have a look at it? So they eventually said, yes. I says, will you give me a name? And they said, well, yeah, if you promise not to do anything. She says, yeah, I promise not to do anything. Honestly, I will. I won't do anything. I'll just have a look into it. And so I got a name out of them. But they won't, they won't press charges at that time. They said, no, we're not interested. We're happy with it. So I made a few inquiries. Didn't do any good at that time. And then... My wife, bless her, was working in the criminal records office. And I knew this woman. They told me she's from Glasgow. After about two or three months, I sent some reports to Glasgow. Just at the same time, my wife said, I think I've identified her. Barbara Hendry is the name she's using. And at the same time, a sergeant who was just about to retire, Gail Lockhead up in Scotland, sent a report saying, yeah, she's used this MO before and she's conned people. So I went back to see them and I said, look, I've identified this woman. Barbara Hendry won the proper name. Are you going to let me carry on? And they said, well, you can if you like, but, you know, we're st-. I said, will you promise me that you won't send her any more money? So, yeah, we won't send her any more money. Okay, fine. So I continued my inquiries and about a month later, I was in, in, the, uh, in the town in Lincoln and saw Ted Warner coming out of bank. And I, I bank at the same bank. So I went in to see them. I said, what's Oh, he's just been transferring some money to Scotland. So anyway, I went to see them again, and they and I told them, and I even had a photo. She'd got previous convicts, and I even had a photograph of her, and I showed them this photograph. I said, look, this is who she is. She's got form. She's got convictions for fraud. No, I won't have any at all. Not at all. And then as they'd borrowed so much money off people and taken loans out of the bank, they just couldn't get any more money. So uh, when I saw them, they said, yeah, okay, we not happy with it. I said, right, leave it with me. So I went up to Glasgow. And the, the interesting thing about that fraud is because it utilises an MO by uh, called fraud by proxy. So basically how it works is I'm a fraudster and I bring you into my fraud and use you to assist me in the fraud. Mm-hmm. And I give you a story or sell you a story and you pull that story out, which gives it credence. And so in that fraud with the elderly couple, there was a bogus solicitor, bogus security guard, there was a forged Rembrandt, there was a bogus doctor, and she had spun them all lies to get them to play their part, which they did. And when I first started inquiring into it, I was thinking, hang on a minute, is this right? Have I got the 
you know, got the wrong end of the stick here. It seems to be because when I rang up this bogus security guard, he got the story. You know, he was supposed to be guarding this Rembrandt, and I didn't tell him who I was. I just rang him and said I got talking to him, and I thought there's something not right here, but it does pan out right. So I, I pursued it, arrested her, arrested her husband. He played the part of bogus sister, and they both went to prison. Um, and then she lived in the Gorbals in Glasgow at some Red Road Colt flats, which were not the best place to live. But people say to me, yeah, well, you know, I won't be conned like that. They won't have me like that. Well, the bottom line is, is until you meet a, a sophisticated fraudster, and I mean sophisticated fraudster, I've dealt with a lot of fraud over the years. I've dealt with solicitors, barristers, policemen who have been defrauded. Now, what happened with the book was they, when we got into the inquiry and she's at court, we used to have a bit of a laugh and they saw her make a good film and all that, you know. So, yeah, probably would. And then they say, well, would you, have you ever written a book? I said, well, no, I haven't written a book. We said, well, would you do that for us and put our side of the story across? Because people will think we're absolute idiots. And they were idiots, far from it. You know, and they're fools and all the rest of it. But would you do it after we've died? So I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I've been writing for years, I really have. Mm. And uh, and then when I retired first time, I thought I'll do it. So I did wrote the book, which is not 100% perfect. There's one or two spelling errors, I accept that. But when I wrote the book, I took it to their daughter. The main intention of the book was for them to come across well, you know, to give their side of the story, which it does. And so... She agreed, and, uh, and I self-published it, and that's basically how it came to pass. Wow. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. You see, fraud has been under-resourced for years. I mean, they've got this action fraud. I say, just go to the police station, say, ring action fraud. Well, I've been quite vociferous against action fraud over the years. Um, but... And there's so many different types of fraud, from your romance fraud, advance fee fraud, your courier fraud. There's all sorts of jobs. And it is on the rise. There's no doubt about it. And and it's all at a distance. You know, you don't meet somebody. But So after I after I was in the CID, I went on the drug squad and all that business. Then I went back in the CID for a while. And then I went into special branch. What my intention was, was to get around as many of these departments in 35 years, and see what it's all about. Well, Special Branch, as your previous guest, Stephen, said, the DI from London, he's, if I remember right, he said it's a bit squeaky-beaky stuff. That's how he called it. That's how he yeah. described it. It's I, I've always wanted to be in there, but it's a bit of a dead man's shoes, and then it happened. So I went as Detective Sergeant in there, and then I got promoted to Detective Inspector in there. And spent a few years in there, which is really interesting. And you're now going to ask me what they do, aren't you? That's going to be the next question. I'll well, let you carry on by telling me. It's all, you know, when you get these sensitive inquiries, they always say, you know, special branch of dealing with it. And that's, that's what it's about. It's about counterterrorism. It's about proliferation, you know, the nicking or the stealing by foreign powers of the UK's secrets and surveillance and counterterrorism stuff. Housing um, spies like the couple that were poisoned, the Skirpoles down in Salisbury. There is no doubt there'll be a special branch involvement in that, big involvement. When you're rehousing somebody, it's very difficult. You know, you've got to get them in at the doctors, get them at the dentist, 
get the national insurance and all the rest of your driving license, blah, blah, blah. You've got to get all that stuff. You know, and they've got to give them a legend. They've got to have a cover story and they've got to stick to it. And or the people who are hunting them down, it'll be easy for them to find. So nobody knew the skip, the Russian father and daughter were living in Salisbury. Nobody knew, apart from the security services. And I would suggest the special branch. And so you do quite a bit of that. And then um, a classic, um, a classic case which comes to mind is I received I was when I was detective inspector of special branch received a telephone call saying, can you get back to your office? Because every special branch office has a secure phone that can't be hacked or eavesdropped and all that. We can't get on with the chief constable, we can't get on with the chief superintendent, you're it. Okay, fine. So I went to the office and basically they said to me, you need to get a, put an operation together because General Pinochet is flying from RF Waddington at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, General Pinochet, going back a bit, he was from Chile. He was quite a controversial figure depending on which side you're on. He was uh, in, living in the UK, he left Chile because of all the problems, living in the UK. And, uh, and basically he decided, or somebody decided, it was safe for him to go back. But the problem was there was uh, a couple of terrorists from another country not too far from Chile had found out there'd been a compromise, found out his plane was going to take off from somewhere in Surrey and they got a Sam Ground to Air missile to blow it out of the sky. So my brief was, get him on that plane and get him in the sky as soon as you can, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, and out of British airspace. And I went, okay, fine. So what happened was we uh, did a bit of research and we got a, uh, because the special branch also liaises a lot with the forces. So in Lincolnshire, we got Coningsby, Cranwell, um, Waddington, the RF stations, and we, there's a lot of interaction between the special branch and these these are the bases. So we knew quite a lot of people on the base. So what happened was we got a Chilean jet flown overnight uh, to RF Waddington, straight onto the runway, straight into Anger, no messing about, only straight out of sight. But what we didn't realise was there's a viewing area just off the A15 where all these plane spotters go, and there was a bloke sleeping in his car who's a plane spotter. And he heard this jet, looked out the window of his car and saw it. And it was a real sort of strange, like a, a green colour. And what he did was he put it on the, uh, they have a, an airplane spotting telephone line. So he put it on that. We didn't know this. And within seven o'clock in the morning, we have 400 people there, all with a photo, you know, photo, telephoto lenses and all that photographing this takeoff, you see. And the, the, the numbers are getting more and more. So I said, we need him in the air. We've got, we've done some of our own work on some ground to air missiles and got various firearms units around and about so the plane could take off. So about quarter past eight on the day, convoy of black Ford galaxies, Range Rovers and that, going to RF1 and Pinochet's on one of them. So I got I got some of my stuff, this SB stuff, uh, at the base and on the runway. So I get him on that plane as quick as possible. We need him out of the way. And he was in a wheelchair. And all of a sudden, air traffic control says, "No, we can't. We can't. He can't take off." So why not? It's because somebody in that viewing area has got a scanner that can transmit and interrupt the air traffic control. 
so we can't give any clearance. So I said to my ISP staff, get in that area and sort the job out. I need that sorted. You know what you got to do. And they did. They, uh, went there. they went there and they sorted it, found out who it was, and I don't know what they did, but they silenced it. And then we're just just about to get him on the plane. This other car pulls up, and it's Margaret Thatcher. What on earth is she doing it? Well, she wanted to make a presentation to him before he flew back to Chile because he had been a great help in the Falklands War because he had allowed an island in somewhere near Chile to be used by uh, an AWAC, a sort of a radar plane that will give information with regard to the uh, Argentinian planes flying over the Falklands and attacking the UK resources. And so she presented that. We got him on the plane, got him out, got him on the runway, plane took off with him on it, and landed in Chile without any problem. What the hell? That sounds like a mission out of a video game or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's <laughs> that, well, that's some of the things that the SB do. Jesus. But you see, the police is not a particularly secure organisation when you get to top secret. I mean, you've got people in the special branch and they're all vetted, developed, vetted and all the rest of it. Stuff that you're access to, you can't disseminate the whole police force. I mean, if we've got a particular, say, terrorist, I used to talk to the probationary constables. I used to give them a tour and say, look, you know, this is the type of people we look at. And they say to me, well, you know, if you tell us who they are, We'll help you until he was on the drive. And when we're on the patrols, I said, well, you can't do that because there'll be a succession of police cars driving past his house. He's been taking the car number, and then he compromises it, and they move somewhere else, don't they? You, you can't disseminate too much information. But, you know, some of the people that are living in the UK, people won't sleep at night. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we'd uh, kept in the dark about it. You did mention that uh, you retired for the first time, indicating that you'd gone back to work. What happened there? Yeah, well, what happened was, well, I've always had this thing about retiring after 30 years because, I mean, you get pay, get paid a pension. Don't everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. But I've seen so many croak it pass after they've got the pension in the next first six months. I thought, oh, that's not going to be. So I, re- I retired, and by that time, I was on the economic crime unit, which is the fraud job, basically. And I got involved in this fraud. And it was a, a $300, $350 million Ponzi fraud, which had Lincolnshire connections. And 3,300 investors lost $350 million. And they were from 60 countries, lived in 60 countries. So it's too big for us lot to deal with on our own. So I referred to the serious fraud office in London. I say refer, you have to report and all the rest of it. And they said, yeah, they'll take it on. So they took it on on the condition that we formed a team to assist them because the serious fraud office, although what they do is investigate serious fraud, they don't have powers of arrest, so they can't arrest anybody. And they certainly can't in Syria and foreign jurisdictions. So, okay, fine. I said, I'll retire. And I stayed on as a senior fraud investigator in charge of the police side of that fraud. And then um, we, you know, I went to work with, you know, the police in Japan, a couple of months in Japan, Bahamas half a dozen times. Canada, New Zealand, and a few other places. Because when you've got a job like that, you need to follow the money. You hear this story, follow the money, because you've got to get the evidence from the banks to say as it went. I mean, the largest investor was a Japanese chap who owned a big firm. He lost $28.9 million. 
And the smallest investor was a little Chinese lady who came to the UK after making a 20 grand in China, which must have been hard work. She came over here to set up a little business and she got involved as a victim and she lost her 20 grand. So, uh, and that took five years to do. Can't rush these things. No. I mean, 7.5 million exhibits, you know, and um, a lot of of paperwork from the banks. You know, they have to get, you have to go through the CPS and get a letter of request. You've got to go out there, liaise with the FBI. You know, there's a load of uh, victims in the state of investors. So we had to go interview with the investors. How did you pay it? What did you pay? You know, did you have an independent finance advisor? Did they refer it to you? Who was your IFA and all the rest of it? So that's when I retired for the first time and then stayed on to finish that fraud. And then I retired five years later and then I went to work for holiday company as a corporate security manager for four and a half years, which was dealing with fraud again. I understand since then you've been doing a bit of work with fiction authors or non-fiction authors just to make sure that the procedural side of their novels sort of makes it realistic for the, for the reader? Absolutely. I used to do it. Uh, on my own and then there's a uh, organization called consulting cops which has got a database of police officers firearms officers you know seizure crime officers and then you contact the site and uh, if you've got any questions but yeah I, I do it i still do it for one author i used to do it for a bloke called nick louth but i think it's important that you know if you're going to do a police procedural then it's got to be right. And if I get anything too too topical, too recent, I'll speak to my son. He's a cop. He'll find out for <laughs> you know, so so yeah, I've done I've done that for about six or seven years. I started a consultancy, fraud consultancy, but I I, I didn't stick with that. It was it was too much too much time. And then I I used to do it on the net, this police consultancy, but when people contact you say can you explain pace for me? Well, there's a bit more to it than a bit more to it than that, you know. If you're going to start writing, you know, crime books, yeah. you know, murder books, and you need to know a bit more about what, what on earth is pace business. You know? Yeah. So yeah, you know, and I must admit, it, it's quite this firm that I'm registered to as a consultant. They seem to do quite a lot, but I have read, I do read quite a few police procedurals, and I've read some, and I think, well. But then, to a certain degree, the, the normal member of the public wouldn't realise that's not right. Well, that's it, isn't it? For the general reader, such as, say, myself or anyone else, we're more interested, I suppose, in the story and a couple of liberties taken with the procedure we won't notice. But for experts like yourself, you might think, ooh. Yeah, and then you get into, if you get into the realms of SARS mm-hmm. and things like that, as you know about, suspicious yep. activity reports or STRs, as you used to call them, you know, it can get a bit complicated, but then warrants can get complicated, doing warrants, and detentions under pace can be complicated. But I've just written, a, I've just finished a police procedural book. Somebody sort of called me bluff and said, well, you write one then. So, <laughs> uh, so I will do. I've just, so I've just, just finished it. I've just got it back from the, because that book I've, that book you've, you've looked at, my first book, I did it through a, um, did it through a, a firm who self-published it for me, and their proofreader, there were one or two mistakes in it, which I wasn't very happy with. But I didn't know until my naivety was, if you send it to a proofreader, it was ready for, you know, printing. Yeah, you'd assume so, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I didn't have it back. But this one, I've sent to proofread it, and it's about as police procedural as you'll get. There's a lot of truth in some of the stuff in it. You know, there's a lot of personal experience thing about it. You know, and um, is it fiction? Yeah, it's fiction. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's another another SP job was that Louth bomb where we had a bloke killed by he was sent to postal IED that he opened at his house. He was in he's in the house with his well in a flat actually, with his three year old son, three year old son in the lounge. He was in the uh, kitchen and he and he opened this package. And it exploded, killing him. And quite a violent explosion. The the three year old was alright, unhurt. But it's the only time in the UK there's ever been somebody killed by a postal IED. It's not been out before, you know, because certain terrorist organisations couldn't get their head around how to do it. And this kid did it. I mean, it was a, you know, certain people on the murder inquiry saying, oh, it's from abroad, you know, this, that, and the other. You got links, somebody got links with Germany and thinking bait a mine off and all that business. No, no, I said, it's local, it's got to be local. And in the end, it was, it was a young lad. Uh, I say young lad, about 25. He, he was a black powder enthusiast. He used to make rockets and with it in a club. And he sent these rockets up to see how, how they could get them to go. And he, he, constru- he basically had been with his girlfriend out in the town one night. And this chap had beaten him up in front of his girlfriend. And he obviously sort of dwelled on it. And, um, and because he was a rocketeer, he had access to black powder and various other bits and bobs. He constructed this bomb and uh, posted it to the bloke that assaulted him, and he opened it and he killed him. Jesus. Blew up. He lifted the flat ceiling three inches. Christ. You know, and, um, and so it was a bit of a, I think I sent you the cutting on that, didn't I? I think you sent me that one. You also sent me the Lincoln Axe Murders one. Oh, the, the Lincoln Axe Murders, yeah. I mean, that was an interesting one. That was that was brilliant detective work. Not on my part, to be fair. I was part of the murder inquiry. But that was brilliant detective work. And um, what happened was, was um, we have this chap who had this small holding, and he lived near me, just grew the veg, ex-farm, and sold the land around him for housing, and he kept the farmhouse and a bit of land. He was killed in his house and uh, attacked with an axe. And then two or three months or so later, another one happened in Lincoln, and with the same axe. And basically, um, the start of the murder inquiry, and it was they found out that um, there's a special type of paint on this axe. The murderer had thrown it in a local lake, but he'd thrown it too hard and it went on the island. Went just two foot too far on the island. And when the murder inquiry started, we, we knew it was an axe of some description. So there's a lot of publicity about we want to find this axe and all the rest of it. And uh, these kids had a raft made out of old drums and planks like they do. And they're messing about on this lake and they go on the island and they find this axe. And it is the axe. So they took the axe home to mum and dad and dad says, hang on a minute, you know, you've heard about all this. And they, they brought the axe in. I mean, we see loads of end of axe. No end of axes in the murdering crowd. People find an axe. Axes all over. You never you didn't realise there's so many axes about. It went up. It's <laughs> 200 axes. But this was the one and these kids had found it. And then the paint on the axe was manufactured by a firm up in Newcastle, somewhere like that. And after a lot of inquiries, we found out that there was only two firms in Lincoln that had that paint and uh, sort of had it supplied by this firm that manufactured it. 
I think it was manufactured in Belgium, but the, the place in Newcastle was the distributor. They started going to the firm, two firms, and started making inquiries, and uh, one firm was using it to spray uh, air conditioning. You know, you go in a factory, get these big conduits, air, air conditioning, it's used for spraying that. So they sent it on one firm, and our killer worked at the firm. And he'd taken some paint home. Right. And uh, he painted this axe, basically. I am convinced that if he hadn't been caught, he carried on killing. I mean, he did too, you know. So, yeah, I, th- I think he would have carried on if he hadn't been caught. It was quite an interesting one, though. Bringing a murder weapon home, that's something to tell the grandkids about, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. And it was the right one, you know. So, you know, you get a great deal of sort of job satisfaction when you get involved in these things. You just hope that during the murder inquiry, you're not the one who's spoke to the murder and alibi. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that, could, that could cause a bit of a problem, oh, you know, because, that, well, you do. It's And there are some very sort of plausible people out there, like fraudsters. I mean, the fraudsters are quite intelligent. You know, I, I used to enjoy dealing with them because it's a challenge. You know, and when I went on the Economic Crime Unit as Detective Inspector, it's amazing what frauds there are or what front some people have got. You know, there was a bloke who was doing an investment fraud and centering on elderly people. I went to see this couple and got talking to them and they'd lost quite a few grand. And I said, okay, fine. Um, what can you tell me about it? And told me all about him, very smooth talker, obviously got a background in investments and all this business. And then uh, the husband said to me, I think we've got his card somewhere. Oh, I said, I appreciate it if you could find it for me. So they had a rake through the drawers and all, all the rest of it. And they came back to me and handed me this card. And this bloke's name was on the card. And it had QBE at the end. And this is, he's ever so intelligent. You know, he's got qualifications. You know, he's got an awards and all that business. And it's a QBE. Okay, fine. So I seized that. And I was thinking, ah, QBE? I was thinking CBE, MBE, OBE. Never heard of a QBE. Anyway, time went by and I ended up arresting him. Got him in the interview room talking to us. So, by the way, that reminds me, this is your, this is a car that you get Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, when you went to visit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I says, well, what's that QBE then? And he went, oh, coy. I said, well, what is it? He says, it means qualified by experience. <laughs> but you see that it's all part of a, all part of it, all part of the putting it across as, it's been professional in all this business. Amazing. I mean, you've, you've had a hell of a career. What do you do in your spare time? How do you relax? You mentioned you like reading, but is there all else? I'm into uh, classic cars a bit. Okay. I quite like, I quite like doing classic. I've got an old car I've been doing. You know, and um, grandkids and all the rest of it. I just sort of fill the time with a bit of writing, checking books for the people, and a bit of property development. I'm into that. Where can we expect the book out, the new fixture one that you've just finished? Well, I, I'm not going to put, so I'm not going to sell publish this time. I'm going to try and find a publisher. So, who knows? But it's a good, it's a good police procedural. I think it's uh, people find it interesting. Is there anything you would tell yourself, your younger self, that would piece of advice you wish you'd known when you started? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say, despite the challenges, stick with it. You know, you will. If you join the police, like any other job, you will get serious challenges and stick with it because sometimes you think when you're investigating, we're not getting anywhere with this. You know, it's not going anywhere. And I've always liked dealing with the difficult 
things that aren't run of the mill. I would say no matter how negative it appears, stick with it because if you rattle the right cage, the uh, the answer will come. Good advice. I'll definitely do the same, without a doubt. No, good. No, that's good. Well, I mean, it's been a pleasure having you on. I think we've pretty much discussed your illustrious career as best we can. Any final thoughts before we sign out, Kim? Not really. I mean, the only thing is that it's very difficult for some people at moments, isn't it? People are going to struggle. And I just hope that with people struggling, you know, it doesn't affect the crime rates and people don't get affected by it too much. Fingers crossed. Don't turn to crime and try not to be a victim of it, if possible. Absolutely right. Always assist your local police. Take that car number down and don't think twice about ringing up if you see something suspicious. If you want to read Kim's book that came out a couple of years ago, A Cruel Deception, I will put a link in the episode description for this. And keep an eye out for that book that you've just finished. Hopefully it gets picked up sooner rather than later. It's called The Water Doesn't Lie. We'll keep an eye out for that. When it, maybe when it's published, we could have you back on to promote it. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Cool. Hope your views up. Anyway, you keep well. Nice one. Well, cheers for your time, Kim. And for everyone else, I will see you soon.